Take your Bibles, please, if you would, and turn to the book of Habakkuk. As we've done a few times now in our series through the Bible, we're trying to do this chronologically for those who are new here and may not know. We've been in the book of Jeremiah for a number of weeks, and uh, we are now going to pause for three Sundays and look at the book of Habakkuk, because Habakkuk now comes on the scene right at this time in Jeremiah's ministry. And so we want to try to keep all of these events in, in context. So uh, I'll give you a bit of time there to find Habakkuk. It's probably the place where the gold is still really shiny on the edge of the pages, and they're stuck together. I can tell you, though, this, uh, this book is rarely, um, it's rarely turned to in churches. And uh, as I've been thinking through this over the last few months, planning for being in this uh, at this time, it has it's reminded me of what a hidden gem this is in the Old Testament, this little tiny book. It is such a, a, a diamond in the rough here, and um, just some powerful lessons. And I'm really excited to take the next three Sundays and look at this book, and then we'll get right back into Jeremiah. All of that, God willing. I still remember what happened with Jonah. I haven't, haven't <laughs> forgotten that. If you've been in church at all, you've heard, I'm sure, the name William Carey, missionary. In uh, April of 1793, William Carey and his family boarded a ship in uh, England, sailed to India to begin a ministry there. And as soon as they set foot in the land, they began enduring incredibly hard times, one hardship after another. They barely received enough financial support for them to even stay alive, uh, which meant that the conditions they had to live in were just uh, dismal conditions that no one would want to be in. They struggled. Life was hard. Um, in time, there. Both their daughters died. Uh, a few years later, their son Peter died. And then a while after that, their oldest son Felix died. And during all this, William Carey worked tirelessly translating the Bible into multiple languages in that land. This was his passion to get God's word into the hands of the people in their own language. And he worked and worked and worked on this and after thousands of hours of diligent effort, the little building where he stored all of his years of work caught on fire and burned to the ground, and he lost everything, and he had to start from scratch. And during all of this, his wife uh, literally went insane, and we're told that she would, uh, she would just scream wildly throughout the day and the night as William was trying his best to somehow hold things together and continue the ministry that he had been called to. Um, I don't know everything about William Carey, but I do know this. He did not plan for his life to turn out that way. No one would. He didn't sit down after college and say, well, let's see. <clears throat> Let me grab a piece of blank paper here. What do they call it today? Your dream board or something? Uh, your vision board. You know, he, he did not manifest this into his life from the great universe out there. Uh, he had very different plans. He had a very different vision and hope 
for his life. And yet this is how his life turned out. And like any normal human being enduring this kind of tragedy, he asked questions like, God, where are you? God, we've prayed and prayed and prayed. Why are you letting life turn out this way? Why are all these things happening to us? God, why are you allowing such suffering and sorrow and pain? Today we meet a man named Habakkuk who asked some of those same questions. He was a prophet of God sent, as I said, to the nation of Judah to warn them that judgment was coming. Jeremiah has been doing this. Um, Isaiah has been doing this. For many hundreds of years, God has sent prophet after prophet to them to plead with them to turn from their wicked ways, to turn back to him before judgment falls. And as God told Isaiah, remember when Isaiah received the call, God said to him, you're going to spend the rest of your life preaching my message to these people, but it's only going to make their hearts harder. It's only going to make their ears more deaf than they are already. I mean, what a calling. Jeremiah faced the same thing. We haven't even seen yet where multiple times they attempted to kill him just simply for standing up for what was right. And so now Habakkuk is on the scene, same place, um, doing similar work. And this has been going on for a long time. Um, This preaching, this praying, this waiting and longing for revival to come all the while, the nation's wickedness just grew worse and worse. And we, we get a sense of this being a very long, drawn-out process in the opening verses of Habakkuk, as he says, Lord, how long, how long am I going to have to keep crying out to you? Let's pick up, uh, let's read the first few verses as we start this in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 1. The burden, which the prophet Habakkuk saw, that word burden can mean oracle. It means literally a heavy message, a hard message to carry. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Well, that's a rather honest statement. Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. Their strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. Um, You don't have to be uh, real insightful. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to pick up as we begin even these opening verses here in Habakkuk that uh, Habakkuk has had enough. He's ticked off. He's fed up. He's sick and tired of seeing a nation living in sin. He's tired of the corruption and the violence and the injustice. And he doesn't hold back at all as he comes to God with this question this almost um, borderline accusation 
I think he's tiptoeing right up to the edge there. He comes to God. He does not hold back at all. He launches his questions at God. And he's trying so hard to state his case. He's trying so hard to convey what he's feeling and what he's seeing all around him that I think he went to the shelf and pulled off the thesaurus and just looked up every word he could. Did you, did you pick it up there? Look at verses 2 and 3 again. See, this is one of the benefits of highlighting your Bible. It'll pay dividends for you in years to come. Look at the words he uses right off the bat. Violence, iniquity, trouble, plundering, violence again, strife, contention. He's been looking around day after day. And wherever he turns, he sees corruption and violence and strife. And all the cultural decay that he sees, all of the religious apostasy taking place was weighing down on him more and more until he reached a breaking point and he just comes and unloads on God. Now listen, I want to make this clear up front. I don't want to put Habakkuk in the wrong kind of light. Habakkuk was a godly man. In fact, I can't find anything in this little book that I could truly accuse him of doing wrong. He was so passionate for uh, God's people to be restored to holiness and righteousness once again, that he is, he's carrying righteous anger about the situation. Did you know anger is not a sin? There are things in life you and I ought to get angry about. There's a right kind of anger, one that stirs something in us to, to get off our rear end and stand up and do something to make a difference in the world around us. And this is where Habakkuk is. He's a, he's a good man. He's, a, he's God's chosen servant for this time. And yet even he felt the need to bring some really hard questions to God. He's saying, God, I... I don't understand. Don't you see all the evil going on, God? Do you not hear our prayers, God? We've been crying out to you. God, where are you when we need you? You ever prayed those kind of prayers? You ever thought those kind of thoughts? Boy, I have. I can tell you I have many times over the years. God, where in the world are you when I need you the most? God, why are you so silent? Why does it feel like, you know, the old saying, my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling? You ever have that experience? Have times in life when you say, God, why are things happening the way they are? I'm trying to be faithful to you, but this situation keeps getting worse. God, I've prayed for healing, and healing hasn't come. Lord, I've prayed forever for that wayward child. And yet he is still on the run. God, I've gone through these financial trials without complaining. God, I'm so concerned about all the evil rising across our nation and the heresy filling uh, our, our churches in the land God, I've been crying out to you for these things. Are you ever going to listen, God? Are you ever going to answer? Hard questions. Hard questions. 
And can I just tell you, uh, it, it does not unsettle God on his throne at all when we come to him with hard questions. I don't see anything in the Bible where God um, judges someone or condemns them for simply asking questions. He remembers that we are dust. He knows what it's like to be down here on this earth, in this flesh, living against all the, the stuff that we're battling against. This is one of the reasons Jesus came. Surely God could have just spoken from heaven and said, I forgive all sin, and Jesus would never have had to come. But he came, and the Bible says that now we have a high priest who, who understands our weakness. He identifies with us. This is why none of us, no one in the world, will be able to stand before God on that day and accuse him of not knowing what it, had, what it feels like to have gone through the trouble and struggles that they went through in their life. Not one person will be able to say, God, you don't know what it feels like. Because he does. He came. He became like us. And he endured it all. And God is okay with us bringing him hard questions. I'm not saying accusations. I'm saying the questions where you just go, God, I really don't understand why you're allowing this to happen in my life. But we need to remember what Habakkuk is about to learn, that if you ask God hard questions, you just might get hard answers. Look at how God responds in verse 5 and following. God says, look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told you. For indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, these are the Babylonians, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. In other words, they have, they're not looking to God for right judgment, for right integrity and dignity. They just make it up from themselves. Verse 8, their horses also are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings, and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold, for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. It's interesting, the little tidbits that the Holy Spirit dropped into his word, um, you know, just reading the Bible and not knowing anything about history, this verse wouldn't mean a thing to me. They heap up earthen mounds. In other words, they, they deride, they, they overtake every stronghold for they heap up earthen mounds and they seize you. You go, what in the world? This is actually a beautiful little piece of context here. We know now from studying Babylonian history that when they would come to take a city, the cities in those days would have enormous walls around them for protection. The Babylonians would come and size up the walls and go, okay, no problem. And they would bring in basically their uh, core of army engineers 
And they would come in and slowly begin bringing dirt in and piling up and building a ramp all the way up to the top of the wall. Then they'd just march right into the city and go, hello, we're here. <laughs> and so this one little unimportant statement is another one of those things that just ties the Bible with what we're learning archaeologically and historically. And it, I love the way all the pieces just snap into place. Well, I'm not sure exactly what answer uh, Habakkuk was expecting to get from God in response to his barrage of questions, but, but I uh, know one thing for sure. He was not expecting this answer. This is one of those passages I think we need to put in reverse and back up and, and read a particular set of words slowly and thoughtfully. Look again at verse 6. God says, For indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, a bitter and hasty nation which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. Look at it again. God says, I am raising up the Babylonians. Habakkuk can't believe what he's hearing. God is raising up an evil, violent, pagan nation for the purpose of eventually coming south and attacking Judah, destroying the temple, destroying Jerusalem, and carting all the people off into captivity for 70 years. God is doing that. We, we need to try to get hold of what's happening here. God is raising up a pagan nation for the purpose of judging his people. This doesn't fit neatly into most of our theology. We, we don't have a compartment for this. And Habakkuk didn't either. He, he was astounded. We'll see in just a moment. He doesn't know what to do with this. There's an important truth here that we'd better learn sooner in our life rather than later. And I mean, this is an important truth. I worked on this forever, trying to figure out how to word this the most succinct way I could, but the clearest way that I could. Here, here's my best attempt. God has the right to use whatever means he chooses to bring about whatever end he desires. We need to get hold of that. God has the right to use whatever means he chooses to bring about whatever end he desires. Hey, quick reminder this morning, he is God, we are not. He is God, we are not. This entire universe is his domain. He measures the galaxies by the breadth of his hand. The earth is his footstool. The entire universe is his domain. It's his kingdom. He is the king and ruler of this entire domain. And he can do whatever he knows is best, even when it doesn't make sense to us. Which means, there will be, listen, there will be, Things that come into your life, 
that you don't think are fair or right or good. But God knows they're exactly what you need to make you who he needs you to be and to ultimately bring about his glory. And if we do not allow this principle to seep deep into us, into our heart, into our thinking, I'm telling you, folks, we're going to end up shipwrecked somewhere along the way. This is why two people can go through the same trial, and one can come out bitter, and one can come out better. How is that possible? It's possible because one understands that God is in charge and that he's at work, even if it doesn't seem like he is, and the other one doesn't understand that. See, it's not the trial. It's how we view it that makes the difference. It's not the trial. It's how we view it. But at the end of the day, God has the right to do Whatever he sees fit, because he knows what is best, we don't. And I'm telling you, this is a hard truth for us to grapple with. There are some instances in the Bible, and there are some instances that I have known and encountered personally in my life that have really, really tested my understanding and my faith in what I've just said. I mean, I've seen, I've seen some things personally over on the mission field that uh, just really bothered me a lot. And I could not understand why God would bring something like that into a person's life and allow that to happen. I have to remind myself, he is God. I am not. He does all things well. Whatever he does is right. Let me give you one, just one absolutely mind-numbing example of this from the New Testament. In John chapter 9, we read this, John 9, 1. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. Watch this. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. What? What? Let's slow this down frame by frame here. This is an odd question that his disciples asked. What's odd to us, it wasn't odd to him at all. The Jews believed that if a person went blind during their life, that was just a happenstance. But if a person was born blind, listen to this, they believed it was in their doctrine that either that child, are you ready for this, sinned in the womb or his parents sinned and caused him to be born blind. Now, it gets one level weirder than that. 
They also had in their doctrine that when the true Messiah comes, remember, there have been a lot of fake messiahs prior to this and since this. There's a man down in Florida who claims to be Jesus, got a huge following, okay, right now, today. Lots of false messiahs had come and gone. And so the people wanted some kind of benchmark, some kind of tests that they could put these messiahs through to narrow it down and see, is this really the true messiah? One of the marks, they believed, of the true messiah would be if he was able to heal a man born blind. Those are two very important words. Not just heal a blind man. Heal a man born blind. You think this is just a random encounter Jesus had? This is an appointment Jesus had from before the beginning of the world. I just love this. Jesus comes along and says, almost like, hey, Father, watch this. Today's the day. Remember? Remember today? These guys are watching. This man born blind, the disciples looked at him. The story had gotten around. Oh, yeah, Joe there, he's, he's born blind. What a sinner he must be. Jesus says, hey, come here. He heals him. Heals a man born blind. The disciples go, wait, Lord, did he sin or did his parents sin to cause this? And this thunderous, jaw-dropping answer comes from the mouth of Jesus. He says, neither of them sinned, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Are you telling me that God ordained for this baby to be born blind and to live? It says a blind man, not a blind baby, not a blind little boy, a blind man. Make him 30. I don't know. Are you telling me? that God ordained for this baby to be born blind, to live his entire life blind, just so that God could be glorified in this moment? Yes, that's what I'm telling you. Stick that in your theological pipe and smoke it. (laughs) Look, let's be honest. This is not easy stuff. We, in, our, in our indignance, we want to sit here and go, who in the world does God think he is? Who, uh, uh, he's God. He's God. And I'm telling you, if you don't learn what Habakkuk had to learn, that God has the right to use whatever means he chooses to bring about whatever end he desires. If you don't learn that, at some point, your faith is going to crumble and turn to dust. Because something is going to come along in your life, or the life of your child, or the life of someone you love, and it is going to destroy your faith in God. Because you're going to look at this situation and say, the, the typical thing people say, there's no way a loving God would ever allow this. Are you sure about that? I don't have a slide for this. It just came to mind, but Acts um, 16, 18, I believe, says, Known unto God are all his works from beginning to end. You understand? You and I have maybe a thousandth of one percent of that knowledge. He's given us a little bit. 
God knows all the works of time from beginning to end. He knows them all. And he is working things out in a way that, as he said to Habakkuk, look, I'd tell you, pal, but you wouldn't believe it if I told you. Whatever God chooses to do in your life or mine, and I mean whatever he chooses to do, he knows what is ultimately best, whether we understand it or not. So God answers Habakkuk, says, I'm raising up a wicked pagan nation just for the purpose of disciplining my people and bringing them back to me. And look at Habakkuk's reaction to this, verse um, 12. Now Habakkuk grabs his Bible, so to speak, and he starts flipping to passages and saying, hey God, I want to remind you the promises you've made. Hold on a minute. He says, are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you've appointed them for judgment, the Babylonians. You've appointed them for judgment. Oh, rock, you have marked them for correction. He's saying, uh, Lord, they're the wicked ones, not us. They're the sinners. I mean, our people are bad. I mean, I know. This is why I'm complaining. This is why I'm here. But we're not that bad. They're the sinners. They're the ones you're supposed to judge, God. God, you, we shall not die. He's saying this is a reference to the covenant that God made with Abraham. There's always going to be this lineage on the earth, always. Nothing will ever be able to snuff it out. And Habakkuk says, God, can I remind you, wait a minute, whoa, whoa, you're talking about bringing a pagan nation down here to wipe us out, to judge us? God, they're the sinners. They need to be judged. Boy, do we not do the same thing? We hear a verse of scripture in a sermon or in our Bible reading, and it convicts us about some specific sin, and our first thought is, boy, I wish so-and-so could be here to hear this. They really need it. So easy for us to point out the sins of others while thinking that our sins aren't nearly as bad. You know, because we're sitting in a church auditorium on a Sunday morning, our sins are a little more acceptable to God. No. That's why it has frustrated the life out of me my entire life to see Christians distancing themselves from the lost. You know, a mom walking down the street with her little girl and she sees a guy with tattoos and piercings and leather jacket coming and she pulls her daughter close and sort of crosses over a little bit this way. Oh, they're bad people. Yeah, you are too, honey. You are too. That's why I've told you, whoever walks through these doors, I don't care if they're strung up on dope. I don't care if they have a needle hanging out of their arm. I don't care if they're drunk. I don't care if they're divorced 20 times. I don't care who they are. We love them in the name of Jesus. We love them. Habakkuk makes a classic mistake. Lord, you got this wrong. They're, they're the ones that need to be judged. 
So Habakkuk has now asked God, where are you? Don't you hear us? Don't you see what's going on? Why aren't you doing anything about all this evil? And God says, oh, I'm at work, all right. I'm at work. I'm orchestrating things behind the scenes that you couldn't believe or understand if I told you. And this brings us to another really, really important truth we need to get hold of. Just because you don't see God working doesn't mean he's not working. You understand, Habakkuk had reached his breaking point. He had called and called and called on God, and he had heard nothing. And so he assumed God's asleep, or he just doesn't care. And he's not doing anything. God, why are you not doing anything about this? God says, oh, buddy, I'm doing some stuff, believe me. It's just going to take about your whole lifetime for it to come about, but I am at work. Every day all over the world, things take place that we can't see, but they're happening. You know, one simple example that we learned, I guess, in uh, maybe grade school, elementary school, or, or somewhere around there. You know, the, every day the sun heats up water in the ocean and, and the lakes around the world, and that water evaporates and it causes it to rise into the atmosphere as water vapor. And then that water vapor condenses and comes together and forms clouds. And when that, those clouds can no longer hold the weight of that rain, the rain falls back down to the earth, runs into the rivers, and goes once again back to the lakes and the oceans. And this process starts all over again, and it happens every day of our lives. You and I can't see that happening, but it's happening just the same. Just because you don't see God working in your situation doesn't mean he's not working. So in your personal life, don't fall into utter despair if God doesn't answer your prayer by 3.15 this afternoon. You don't have to see him working. You don't have to feel him working. You don't have to understand how he's working. The fact is, he has all things in his control, and he is working it all together for his ultimate glory. And I will tell you this, most of the time in this life, God will keep his hands over our eyes. He will not let us see everything that he's doing. This is why we're called to live by faith. This is why I ask you questions from time to time. Like, if God decided today and made a worldwide announcement that he's never going to answer another prayer for the rest of time, that he's never going to pour out his blessings on any person for the rest of time, would you still love him? Would you still serve him? Would you still follow him and give up your life for him? You see, down here, we, we are so, we think we are so all that. We think we're so advanced. We're so brilliant. We have so much wisdom and understanding. But the truth is, we're playing checkers while God is playing chess. We're, we're reading nursery rhymes while God is working on quantum entanglement. We are not at his level. We do not understand him. We do not understand the things he's doing. Isaiah says this, a verse that's been used so much, it's, I almost hesitate to use it. 
You know, I, I didn't put this on the slides, but you know, his ways are not our ways. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And it's so true. When, when, when we're tempted to think that God is absent and he's uncaring, we must discipline ourselves to come back to this truth. We must come back to the point where we can rest in his spotless character. We can rest in his unblemished track record knowing with absolute certainty that God is at work, whether we see it or not, and whatever he is doing is right. But thankfully, God has far more than our little problems under control. I don't know if you noticed when he said to Habakkuk, look among the nations and see what I will do. He's saying, listen, Habakkuk, uh, I don't just have your life in my hands. I have the nations in my hands. And I'm even moving them in ways that are going to bring about my ultimate will. See, we're we're too quick to draw conclusions on things that we see happening or things that happen to us. We're, We're way too quick to say, boy, God's really lost control here. God needs to come fix this in a hurry. We're too quick to reach that point. Because what appears to be a tragedy today will result in glory when it's all said and done. On a grand scale and on a personal scale for every one of you. The cross, the cross looked like God's greatest defeat. And yet it was ultimately his greatest triumph. And one day, folks, listen to me, one day in time, the same will be true of every cross in our lives. Every one. If you're committed to following the Lord, I'm telling you there are going to be some seasons along the way that will cause you to question everything you thought you knew. And you're going to start saying things like, God, why did you let this happen? I've been faithful to you. God, why did the cancer come back? God, why did our child die? God, why did I get laid off when I was the one working so hard? God, why do you allow so much evil and suffering in the world if you're good? Do you even see what's happening, God? Do you even care? Where are you, God, when we need you most? And when you ask those questions, just remember you're in good company. People throughout the Bible and throughout all of time have asked those same questions. Jeremiah asked those questions. Jeremiah 12, 1, he said, You are always righteous, O Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet I would speak with you about your justice. In other words, God, come here. I need to uh, explain a few things to you about this justice of yours. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? You ever felt that way? Man, this guy's he's cutting corners on his expenses. He's cheating on his taxes. He's cheating on his wife. He's lying to customers to get a profit. 
he's the one driving the nice car and living in the nice house, and I'm the one barely making it by? Is this really, God, is this how your justice works? David asked those questions. Psalm 13, 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Oh, David asked lots of those questions. And yet, you know what the Bible said? He was a man after God's own heart. It's okay to ask God questions. Job wrestled with this. The first verse of the book of Job says Job was the most righteous man in all the land. And yet, God chose to allow all his children to be killed, to lose every possession he had, and to end up sitting in a pile of ashes with boils all over his body. So naturally, in the midst of that devastation, Job had some hard questions for God. Here are some of them. Job 23.1. Then Job answered and said, Even today my complaint is bitter. My hand is listless because of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, God. That I might come to his seat. Uh-oh. I'd present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. Would you, Job? Okay. Verse 8. Look, I go forward, but he's not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. And when he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him. And as you continue reading, you'll see Job is asking the questions any human would ask in the midst of such trauma. He's saying, God, where are you in all this? It's a fair question. God, where are you? I can't find you anywhere. I look all around me, God. You're not there. And then chapter after chapter after chapter to the end of the book, God simply and patiently explains his power and majesty and might to Job. And after getting a reminder of who God is, Job concludes by saying this in Job 42.3, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You see, at first, Job, Job could only see his pain. And in that state, he said, God, where are you? But as soon as he fixed his eyes on God's character and might and glory and power and omnipotence, he said, God, I spoke too soon. I see now, you know exactly what you're doing. Even when I don't understand, God, I'm going to just keep my mouth shut. Wow, what a transformation. Well, we'll bring it all to a close here. Maybe you today, maybe you needed to hear Habakkuk chapter 1. Maybe you right now are going through some battle, some hurt, some loss. And you've been saying, God, this isn't what's supposed to be happening to me. God, I love you. I serve you. I'm trying to be faithful to you. I'm trying to live my life for you. I'm trying to do the right thing. But God, this, this piece of the puzzle that you've come and, and put in my life now, this piece surely wasn't meant for me, God. It doesn't fit. I don't see God in this. This wasn't part of my plans. 
But I'm going to tell you, when all this down here is over and we see him face to face, you'll realize then that that peace does fit and that it was right all along. And you'll be able to say, hopefully before that day, what Job was able to say, and I close with this verse, Job 23.10, but he knows the way that I take, and when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Are you there today? A lot of hard questions for God. It's okay. Ask away. If that's where you are, I would encourage you, though, to come back to these two central truths that we've talked about. Whatever God is doing is right, and he's working even when you can't see him working. Trust him, folks. Trust him. Ask him to give you the power to be that person who comes through the trial better and not bitter to bring him glory. Let's pray. I just remind you quickly, this is, this is not a time for gathering things up and going to get coffee and all that. This is, a, this is a time we need to really respect. Time for all of us to respond to whatever God might be saying to us. And you do that however you see fit. You want to come to the front and kneel and pray, you can do that if you want to Pray in your seat or kneel there. If you want to come to the back and speak with me or one of the ladies who will be at the back, you can do that during these closing songs. We're here for you to help you in any way that we can. If you need help, don't pass this moment by today. If God is nudging you, if he's knocking on the door of your heart, speaking to you about one thing or another, whether it's salvation or whether it's uh, restoration, take care of it today. Father, thank you for this straight shot from the book of Habakkuk. Um, boy, there's just, no, there's just no way to get around what we've seen today. That God is the one who's in charge. We are not. I, I pray, God, that we would not submit to that with a cold, hard, resistant obedience. I pray, rather, we would be like the clay in the hand of the potter that's been softened and submits to your omnipotence and your sovereignty with humility and joy and gratitude, knowing that you are moving all the pieces where they need to be and you are doing it better than we ever could. God, I pray for those here today who may be hurting, who may be carrying something so, so difficult that they've been wondering if they could go on. Maybe they've even been wondering if you care about them at all. God, would you come and in the way that only you can do by your spirit, come today, Lord, and comfort them, encourage them, lift up their eyes off of the issues that surround them and put them back where they need to be 
on the God who has everything in control. God, may we trust our lives to you from this day on until we see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. of my heart I want to see